0: The Biocerticals Clinical range has been developed exclusively for clinicians. This product range offers complex formulas, high doses and specific ingredients for specialised cases. Biocerticals Clinical infuses quality, credibility, innovation and professionalism into an exclusive product range that meets the needs and demands of private clinicians. Visit biocerticals.com.au to learn more. Welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia where we live and work and the connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to the Elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. With us today is Dr. Frank Cull a registered clinical psychologist with over 20 years of experience in helping people overcome a range of psychological disorders. Frank has a particular interest in treating complex sleep related disorders including insomnia, parasomnias and circadian rhythm disorders. In his practice, he also works with people to help them get off their sleeping medications. Welcome to FX Medicine, Frank. Thanks for being with us today.
1: Thanks Adrian. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you. I know that you have a specific expertise in the treatment of sleep-related disorders. So this is the area today that I wanted to pick your brain on. Um, I know that sleep disorders are extremely prevalent in the community and their prevalence is higher in people experiencing a range of medical and physical disorders. And I know that I had a brief read of the literature and I know that there's inconsistency in the research, but I've seen statistics that show that approximately 50% of people regularly report feeling sleepy during the day, and a third of people asleep less than seven hours a night.
1: So yeah, I, mean, I think that's pretty true. I actually picked up some research with the Sleep Health Foundation recently. They did a study about 2019. They took a sample of about 2,000 people and they broke it down in terms of how many in that population were struggling with their sleep. And I broke it down in terms of gender and they found that about 13 to 14% of males struggle with sleep or meet Mm -hmm. the DSM classification of insomnia, around about 10% or 11% uh, females met the criteria, DSM criteria for insomnia. So you're kind of looking around about, this is for chronic insomnia, you're looking around about uh, 11-12% of the population really struggling with their sleep. But you're right, I I think when you kind of broaden that out and move away from the DSM criteria of uh, insomnia, which is difficulty sleeping for you know, at least three nights a week for at least Mm -hmm. a couple of months. Most of us, and well over 50% of us, really struggle from time to time. We go through periods where we struggle with sleep. We see this a lot, particularly during the warmer months when we struggle to sleep at night. But I I think also what we're seeing or I'm seeing in the practice is a lot more stress-related insomnia, which is coming out of the current period that we're going through, coming out of the pandemic, that really messed with a lot of people's sleeping patterns. And also financial stress, which is one of the major stresses in Australia at the moment, is also messing with people's sleep as well. So we're seeing a whole bunch of factors impacting upon the way in which people are sleeping at the moment.
0: So you mentioned the kind of financial stress. So stress is kind of a trigger or or associated with the sleep disturbances. Are you Mm. seeing that generally insomnia or sleep-related problems are increasing over your time as a clinician?
1: Absolutely. I, I just remember when prior to the pandemic, uh, it was quite interesting. Uh, because of the nature of the work I do, it's pretty short term. So the average would be about two or three sessions if a person came in for treatment for insomnia. So it's not long-term therapy. But what I found prior to the pandemic, I would probably have my uh, appointments booked out for about two weeks. Yep. When the pandemic came, particularly uh, I think it was 2020 we it really started to hit, there was a tsunami of uh, insomnia cases coming up Um, and I was booked out for a month or two months trying to get people in. It was uh, a phenomenal increase in the rate of people uh, seeking help for treatment around insomnia. So the pandemic really did make a significant impact on people's sleep patterns. And of course, the anxiety associated with that also uh, precipitated um, sleeping difficulties.
0: Well, so I know that uh, a lot of clinicians were, you know, obviously inundated with referrals for, you Mm -hmm. know, depression and anxiety, Mm -hmm. but you're also seeing problems with sleep increasing.
1: Yeah, we did. We absolutely, we did. When you think about sleep, usually there's a a precipitating event that usually kicks it off. And it could be a whole bunch of things. It's usually things like financial stress, relationship issues, work-related issues. A lot of people were laid off during that period of time. They lost their job. And that was a major precipitating uh, factor that, really started to affect people's ability to actually fall asleep or waking too early and then lying in bed worrying about mm. you know how they're going to pay the bills
0: And so the people who were coming in with to see you for sleep problems mm. would they mm. have had a history of sleep problems you know in childhood or adolescence or do you think it was just kind of a new condition that they experienced as a result of the stresses that they were experiencing?
1: Yeah that's a really good question. I guess um, it could be broken up into two categories. You have people who, I guess, had difficulties long-term in relation to their sleep, starting from childhood. And we see this a lot with neurological disorders like ADHD, um, mm-hmm. autism spectrum disorder, where they've always had difficulties, and they take that into teenage years and adulthood. There's also a genetic component there as well. If the um, parents were, uh, had difficulty sleeping or struggled with insomnia or sickly rhythm disorders, we often see that um, coming out. In the children, and they often present as part of their long history associated with sleep. If yeah. I was to put a percentage on that, I would say probably about 40% of the people I see fall into that particular category where they've struggled with their sleep for many, many years and they've just decided to come at a particular point, decided to get help. Mm-hmm. But quite often what we see is we have good sleepers, great sleepers who are terrific sleepers throughout their life, as into childhood, or teenage years. They'd go to bed, they'd put their head on the pillow, and they'd go out like a light. And uh, they would have a a precipitating event. As I said, it could have been a stress-related event. It could be a loss of a job. It could have been marital conflict. We often see it with mothers, young mothers, who are great sleepers until the baby comes along. And Mm. after the birth of their child, they then start struggling with their sleep. So we have a lot of people who are great sleepers, and then suddenly their sleep goes off. And they get yeah. very, very anxious. And there's a lot of anxiety that's then tied in with that. That kind of perpetuates the insomnia. They get really worried. And then they start reading all the press about the impact that poor sleep could have on their mental health, yep. their physical health, and their longevity. And, and, of course, that feeds into their anxiety, which continues to perpetuate their inability to fall asleep at a reasonable time or maintain sleep throughout the night.
0: So with the people who were, um, who were experiencing more, a more recent problem for them as opposed to the people who have had a history of poor sleep, mm-hmm. how successful are you in treating the, the more chronic sleepers as opposed to the ones who have, have it more as an acute condition?
1: Equally successful. Oh, really? It's, wow. Yeah, equally successful. It's really interesting. Um, the, the approach is, is a little bit different. When you've got the long-term sleep, uh, people are suffering from insomnia, a lot of them present in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And a lot of them have had a long history of sleeping medication. So we see people that they're on still not, been on still for, let's say, you know, 10, 20 years, Temazepam 10, 20 years, and their sleep is up and down, up and down. Their, their GP wants to get them off it. So uh, when we sit down and start talking to them, what we find is that they have been making the same mistakes for the last 20, 30 years in relation to their sleep. So these mistakes kind of fall into the category of what we call perpetuating factors. So what are the mistakes that people make going to bed too early when they're not ready to go to sleep? So they're lying in bed for long periods of time, getting anxious about their ability to fall asleep. Or waking in the middle of the night and lying in bed for long periods of time, getting fretful and frustrated, or catching up on sleep, um, napping mm-hmm. during the day consistently. So then, When we target those perpetuating factors and tighten up their sleep, particularly around mm-hmm. increasing their homeostatic sleep drive, what we often see is a miraculous turnaround within about a wow. week or two. It's quite phenomenal. Then you get those that have had a, a brief onset of insomnia. And uh, they're a little bit trickier because often what they present with is significant anxiety about their sleep. Uh, They're great sleepers. The sleep has gone off and they have difficulty either initiating sleep or they wake in the middle of the night and they can't go back to sleep. So sleep onset and sleep maintenance insomnia. And with that, they bring, as I said, an enormous amount of anxiety. They um, go to bed every night with a degree of uncertainty. And of course, uncertainty loves anxiety or vice versa. So um, they often get into bed. They have what we call a conditional arousal response, where the brain no longer associates the going to bed with the degree of certainty that they used to rely on. And they lie there thinking, well, I get to sleep tonight. And of course, their cortisol levels start to spark up and they start to get anxious. They start clock watching and they start worrying about the capacity to function the next day. And of course, that feeds into it. And then they start developing a pattern of either difficulty falling asleep each night or waking for long periods during the night. So with that class or that group, I'm often dealing with the anxiety associated with it. Um, So we have to address their anxiety about not falling asleep. But they're two different angles that we approach when uh, treating insomnia.
0: In terms of the, you've mentioned sleep onset, so the difficulty falling asleep and then sleep maintenance, the difficulty kind of staying asleep, is it a 50-50 split? Do you think that, uh, in your experience, are you having more people with one as opposed to the other or how's your practice looking?
1: They generally fall into three categories. Those people that have difficulty falling asleep or initiating sleep. But once they're asleep, they generally stay asleep. So that's what I would call sleep onset insomnia. The other one is uh, sleep maintenance insomnia or middle insomnia, this is where people can fall asleep okay, but they tend to wake about the same time every night, and they could be up for about an hour or two hours, even three hours, and then they fall asleep before the alarm goes off. And the last group is uh, what we call early morning waking. So early morning waking is where they you know, they can fall asleep sleep throughout the night, but they wake about three or four in the morning, and they can't go back to sleep. So you've got three types of insomnia, which require slightly different approaches but we address it in the same sort of theme. Now, uh, sometimes you can get people with the trifecta. They have sleep onset, middle insomnia, early morning waking. they you know varies across uh, the week. But generally we, we see it in those three formats. I tend to see a lot of uh, sleep onset insomnia with younger mm-hmm. population, probably in their 20s and 30s. We see a yeah. lot of that, sleep maintenance. I see a lot in the older populations. And early morning waking, I see a lot with people who are often working and are in stressful jobs, and they wake and their brain switches on, oh, and they okay. just can't switch off. They think about the next day. They get in a bad habit of sort of lying there thinking about work and thinking about issues, and then they start looking at the clock and start calculating mm-hmm. how much time they've got left to get up. And that, of course, starts feeding into their anxiety and uh, makes it more difficult to get to sleep.
0: And so yeah. you mentioned that for some people with who have difficulty falling asleep, there's that worry about falling asleep and the anxiety around falling asleep. And when you talk about kind of sleep onset, any other causes that you think are going on with sleep onset insomnia?
1: No, it's, it's 99% of the time. As long as there's no pain involved, pain can be a yeah. big issue. But yep. 99% of the time it's anxiety, absolutely wow. anxiety. It's the question, will I get to sleep tonight? And they start yep. they start thinking about that during the day. They start thinking about that in the evening. The best example I, I often give to clients that I'm working with, it's it's a little bit like being bitten by the backyard dog. Uh, you used to be friends with the backyard dog, you know, who would greet you every night, every day mm-hmm. when you come home from work, and very friendly, but all of a sudden starts turns on you and one day it bites you, and you think that's strange. And then the next day you go through the backyard and it bites you again. After a while, you start getting a little bit anxious about going through the backyard to see the dog. And in the yeah. same way... People get very, very anxious after a while if they find that they have night after night where they struggle to fall asleep. And this is where they start to turn to sleeping medications, which is a bit of a slippery slope. But yeah. it, it does create an enormous amount of anxiety for people who struggle to fall asleep, particularly if they were great sleepers prior to yeah. um, to the insomnia developing.
0: What about then for people with sleep maintenance? Do you think it's anxiety there too?
1: No, it's frustration. <laughs> it's really frustration. interesting. Frustration, absolute frustration. Yeah? It's really interesting. You ask them, you know, uh, are you anxious when you go to bed? And they go, no. Nah. And they go, how do you feel when you wake at 2 o'clock on the dot? And they go, frustrated. What do you do? Oh, I lie in bed. I toss and turn. I play on my phone. I look at the clock. Wow. I just get frustrated. There is a, yeah. They do get a little bit anxious if they're lying there for a long period of time, and then they start perceiving lying there as a significant threat to their capacity yep. to function the next day. But I would say it's frustration first, followed by a smidgen of anxiety, but not frustration. Uh, and the same with early morning waking. It's usually frustration. Because if you think about it this way, they've already had, yeah. those with middle insomnia, they've already had probably two deep sleep cycles. So they've mm. gotten the bulk of their sleep. Yep. So they've, they've gotten to sleep, but they're just, they just lie. They're getting frustrated about the fact that they can't go back to sleep. And that, of course, in itself is a perpetuating factor that keeps the insomnia going for you know, days, wow. weeks, months, years.
0: So I notice, like, yeah, sometimes if I'm um, struggling, kind of fall asleep, and I might wake up at the same time. And it's like the, you know. I wake up at almost identically the same time for a few nights. What's going on there? How come it's so? Is there something going on? Is it is it the REM cycles and the different stages of sleep that are going on that it's kind of and what, I'm waking? What time? Be, what, what time are
1: you getting up, Adrian? What time are you waking? Oh,
0: from actually, at the moment it's like four o'clock, four a.m. Mm,
1: mm. What time do you get to bed?
0: Probably about. Or get to- st- Get to sleep. Oh, I fall asleep you know, straight away, so I probably you go to bed ten thirty, and you know, ten thirty-five. I'm I'm out.
1: Okay, so if you're waking at four, that's five and a half hours. So you're waking yeah. five five and a half hours after sleep onset. So if you think about it this way, most of your sleep drive has been burnt off during that mm-hmm. time. You've gone through you you know your deep sleep cycles, and you're coming into the lighter end of the the night. And typically, when we see the back end of the night after about four o'clock we see a lot more REM going on and lighter sleep. So a lot of people are likely to wake around that time, around about four o'clock. Uh-huh. So that's what we call early morning waking. The other thing too, what time does it get light there? You're in WA, actually. Yeah, it's,
0: it's now, um, it, it is getting a little bit later, but yeah, you know, 4.30 it was getting light, so. Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, yeah. If you're a bit of an early bird, you, you're going to be stimulated by the light, more likely to wake at that yeah. point in time. This is the other thing. If you wake at let's say four o'clock on the dot every morning and you wake and you look across and look at the clock, what that actually does, it actually trains you to wake at four o'clock. It's like a queuing process. So the general rule is you get rid of the clock. Uh, Your room should be like a casino. So that'd be the first thing. The second thing is that um, a lot of people do wake at that time. And of course they get frustrated They think, why can't I sleep right through? Mm -hmm. What's wrong? And a lot of people have a belief that you should not wake during the night that you should sleep mm-hmm. straight through. In actual fact, it's quite normal to wake. So with early morning wakers, what I generally get them to do is, first of all, normalize the wake. It's okay to wake at that time because you've know you, you burnt off the majority of your sleep drive. Secondly, I often get people to get out of bed at that time just for a short break, about 10 or 15 minutes. And we find that that's very, very useful because it helps do a bit of a reset and it actually drops the body temperature as well because often when we wake, there's a bit of a rise in the body temperature that wakes us. So getting out of bed it helps us kind of reset our body temperature and then back into bed. And this is the thing here. I get people to go back to bed and I get them to focus on resting, not trying to go back to sleep. And this is the biggest mistake people make is that they try to go back to sleep. And as soon as you engage in a thing called sleep effort – you might as well get up and start the day. But if you can go back to bed and just focus on resting eyes closed without any effort of trying to go back to sleep, it's a phenomenon called sleep state misperception where you can often be asleep or uh, have pockets of sleep without even realising. And uh, the one thing that will tell you that is that if you got up 4 o'clock, 10 minutes, came back, and uh, you uh, the alarm went off at 6 o'clock, if you felt that that time went relatively quickly chances are you're asleep without even realising. So that's generally how we would approach that. Uh, also, I would probably just tune in to see what was going on with the individual. Do they have a busy mind at that time? And also to we could do some work around managing their active thoughts and in bed.
0: Yep. And uh, just briefly, just in terms of uh, how do you manage that busy mind? <laughs> well, interesting.
1: Let me put it this way. You are defeated or starved. Most people get that. So what they're doing, if something comes into their head, they think they should process it, think about it. People lie in bed planning about the work ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is um, – so I, I basically say, look, you either feed it or starve it. I say, what do you mean? Well, so I say, get out of bed, have a break. That will shut that down. Come back to bed. Notice the difference between active thinking and passive thinking. So mm-hmm. if you start thinking about work, just gently say, let it go turn your attention to something else. Typically a memory can be quite useful and to just drift off onto that. But it's useful to make note that there is a group of individuals where this is quite a difficult process. And here I'm talking about the ADHD population. Mm. And I've been seeing a lot of that presented in my practice, people presenting with undiagnosed ADHD. And one of the major presentations they have is that they have massive difficulties either switching off their active brain when they go to bed at night so they have these long sleep latencies or they wake about three or four in the morning and their mind just runs like a freight train and they have difficulty turning that off. In that that particular case, what we often do is we either introduce medication that can actually help or the other one is just using distraction strategies. So here I often encourage people who've got very active minds or people that are living with ADHD I would encourage them to put on a podcast, put on a radio, listening to an audio book, just to distract them from their thoughts and help them sort of drift off to sleep. So distraction strategies can very be very useful with that population.
0: Okay. All right. So we've got people with uh, sleep onset uh, insomnia, and then you mentioned that kind of anxiety is... A driver there and you'll start modifying some of the beliefs around that and and working. Mm. CBT-based approach, is that what you're basically doing, your CBT mm. for insomnia? Yep. CBT for insomnia yep. is the gold
1: standard. And how we approach it, just we tweak it a little bit. It's made up of five components. Um, you've got sleep hygiene, we've got uh, relaxation therapy, we've got stimulus control therapy, sleep restriction therapy and cognitive therapy. Just a quick heads up on sleep hygiene sleep hygiene Mm -hmm. is the first thing that people go to if they're having difficulty falling asleep and in actual fact it's not an effective treatment for insomnia the best way to think about sleep hygiene is very similar to oral hygiene it's a preventative process so it's Mm -hmm. designed to prevent the onset of insomnia in the same way brushing your teeth and flossing is designed to prevent cavities but when a person gets a toothache and they go to the dentist, the dentist doesn't recommend more flossing and brushing of teeth. It requires you know, more consistent work or more in-depth work. And this is where probably the top three areas that we focus or work on when we're dealing with insomnia would be restriction therapy, stimulus control, and cognitive therapy. They're the top three. And uh, they okay. work extremely well.
0: Now, I know that there's a lot of talk about sleep restriction therapy. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Mm, Absolutely. Sleep restriction therapy is basically designed to build up the
1: sleep drive of the individual. Often what we see when a person presents their sleep diary in the first session and you have a look at the sleep diary, there's often a mismatch between the time in bed and the amount of sleep that they're getting. So, for example, a person might be going to bed at 9 o'clock at night uh, and getting up at six, that's nine hours in bed. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're probably getting about four, five, let's say five to six hours sleep. Yeah. So there's little over a 50% sleep efficiency. So what we do is that if we can get a person to go to bed much, much later and get up much earlier, in fact, try to match their time in bed with the average amount of sleep that they're currently getting, What we often find is that it increases their overall sleep drive. So sleep drive is built throughout the day. The longer you're up, the stronger the drive. And it's that sleep drive that actually helps us address a lot of the insomnia issues, uh, manipulating sleep drive. So sleep restrictions are very, very useful. It's extremely effective when you're dealing with what we call sleep maintenance insomnia, where people are waking in the middle, middle of the night And uh, they're struggling to go back to sleep. When we increase their sleep pressure by getting them to go to bed much later and getting up much earlier, after about three or four days, it's a little bit tough. But after about three or four days, we start seeing the sleep drive picking up and kicking in. And the individual starts waking less and for shorter periods of time during the night but it's probably the most successful wow. uh, approach to dealing with particularly sleep uh, maintenance and even early morning waking. Sleep restriction can also be very useful for uh, sleep onset insomnia, but I li- am get a little bit careful about that because there's yeah. massive levels of anxiety there. So getting a person to go much later, they often struggle with that and that can actually increase their anxiety. So what we generally do, unless they're going to bed ridiculously early times, what we generally get them to do is go to bed at a reasonable time, get up at a reasonable time. But if they're having difficulty falling asleep, we then introduce stimulus control therapy, which is getting them, if they haven't fallen asleep, within a reasonable period of time, and I'm not putting a a timing on this like 20 minutes, it's when they get into what I call a negative state, we get them out of bed for a period of time. There's two schools of thought here. The first one says you get them out of bed until they're actually dead tired, falling off the yep. chair, and then you get them back into bed. I've often got a, had a lot of success with getting people out of bed for a short period of time, for about 10 or 15 minutes, just to kind of reset, drop their body temperature back into bed, and then rinse and repeat as required. And I find that's quite useful in breaking that pattern of um, I go to bed, I don't sleep, to I go to bed, eventually I eventually fall asleep. So uh, stimulus control is often used in conjunction with uh, moderate levels of sleep restriction therapy for uh, sleep-onset insomnia, but definitely sleep maintenance insomnia and early morning uh, waking definitely uh, responds very well to sleep restriction therapy.
0: Okay. I've got a couple of questions. The first one is, so you said sleep Mm -hmm. restriction, so you get them to go to bed later. Is it always with sleep restriction always going to bed later? Can you do the reverse where they get up? earlier? So they go Mm -hmm. to bed, say, Mm -hmm. 10 p.m. and wake up at 3 a.m.?
1: It's often been up for negotiation. For example, if if we came to the conclusion with a client that their average sleep is around about five and a half hours and we say, we agree, I want you in bed for, say, six hours, they can negotiate Mm -hmm. that. They can do, say, 12 to 6. They can go to, what, 11 to 5 or, um, what, 10 to 4. So, yeah, absolutely. It's it's to do with the time in bed. Is what yep. we're looking at here. So it doesn't really matter what time
0: you skip. It does matter. Okay. Mm. And second question. You mm-hmm. said they get up and so maybe they get up for ten minutes or so. Do you get them to do anything in particular?
1: Uh, no. My my standard line is get up and go down to the kitchen and stare at the dog. Um, <laughs> assuming that they've <laughs> got a dog. <laughs> and they go, Oh. I don't have a dog. He so said, well, you have to get a dog to do this exercise. <laughs> um, no, I basically just say, So you get them to buy to- a dog.
0: So you do some pet therapy too then, do you? That's
1: the one. That's the yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. terrific. Um, no, I just, actually, I just get them to uh, just go downstairs. Uh, they go go down to the kitchen.
0: Well, now uh, you're going to uh, get just... them to buy another house too if they don't have a two-story yeah. house.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So many, so many conditions to get your sleep. <laughs> like my God, Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, um, I get them to go down and just sit quietly. That's all. Just sit quietly. Mm -hmm. I get them maybe to put the range hood on, keep the lights down low. That's important. I usually don't get them to read or play on their phone. Just sit quietly, maybe a glass of water, shuffle around for a bit, and when they're ready, usually about 10 or 15 minutes, head back to bed. Often that works. If they're really struggling, sometimes I say stay out of bed until you're ready to go back to bed. I often find a short break. Often it helps. But the main thing here is when I get them back to bed, I get them to focus on resting and drifting rather than trying to get to sleep. Yeah, good point. And this is this is where we get into this whole area of sleep effort where people will go to bed and they'll try to get to sleep. And as soon as you start trying to get to sleep, you've gone for all money. So our major focus is... Focus on resting and drifting. You could be asleep without even realising. Mm. But as long as you're lying there and you're relaxed, stay there. But as soon as you get into that negative state, you get frustrated and you're tossing and turning, I'd say, get out of bed. And I just might add also, it's critical you get rid of the clock. Particularly if people are struggling with their sleep, the clock and clock watching mm. is a major kind of perpetuating factor that kind of feeds into their anxiety and their frustrations.
0: Well, yeah, good, good. I know certainly with my clients, I often say to them, you know, certainly in most things in life, if you try hard, you do better. But when it comes to falling asleep, trying hard uh, is certainly not the way to go. You generally don't do that much better if you try too hard falling asleep. So um, You're dead right. You're
1: dead right. That's the major area. In fact, I I summarise the work that I do in two basic principles, and that is stop trying to get to sleep and stop worrying about not sleeping.
0: Once they get their head around that, usually it resolves itself. Yeah. Now, you mentioned sleep diaries. Do you get um, everybody to keep a sleep diary?
1: Yeah, I do. I do. Sleep diaries are very, very helpful. I use a, um, I was going to say a graphical one, where they just sort of draw a line, if you will, put a marker Mm -hmm. in terms of an arrow when they go to bed and then sort of line when they thought they were asleep and gap. Uh, on the uh, form where they thought they were awake and so on and so forth, and an arrow when they perceive that they got got up. And when you look at a sleep diary for two weeks and it presents it on a page, you see the pattern really quickly. And you get an understanding that sleep really does fall into a pattern. You're either sleeping well or you're not, but the pattern is really clear. You can either see that they have difficulty falling asleep. And it's not every night. You'll have two nights where they have difficulty falling asleep. And usually by the third night, they have a good night's sleep. And then the next couple of nights are poor. And then the next third night is usually a good night's sleep. And that's because of the nature of sleep restriction. So you get to see um, whether they're waking a lot during the night, for how long, whether it's early morning waking or whether it's sleep onset and insomnia. So very quickly, you get a visual. I get a visual and I go, okay, I know where to go with this one and, and how to it. So they're very good. The other thing too, is that People in doing the sleep diary, they find it very interesting because they then see the pattern that they've been engaged in for many, many years. And that in itself can be very helpful in part of their education to uh, to get them starting to change their pattern or starting to address some of the perpetuating factors that are kind of feeding this pattern and has been for many, many years for some clients.
0: So with the sleep diary, you've got obviously the timing of sleep and waking. Is there anything else that you get them to record in that sleep diary?
1: No, the only other thing too is I, I get them to do a DAS, Adrian. Um, okay, yep. A, de- a DAS can be quite useful, a Depression and Anxiety and Stress Scale. If there's high levels of stress coming out of the DAS or depression, we know depression and sleep have a bidirectional relationship. Depression can cause sleep and sleep can cause depression that can give me an idea if there's any sort of comorbidities there that I need to address. Mm-hmm. When I get somebody who has difficulty sleeping, often I see this with early morning waking, and I have a look at their desk and their stress levels are very, very high, then leads to a conversation about what's happening in their work. And that often leads to conversations about managing the stress in their work mm-hmm. life or home life. Uh, and when we reduce the stress there that can have an impact on uh, resolving some of the insomnia as well.
0: So it's not only just obviously what you do when you fall asleep and and how to deal Mm. with the thoughts about sleep, but it's also how you kind of manage your day and how you manage stresses and things like that. Mm, Correct.
1: So sleep is an event that occurs within a 24-hour sort of cycle. And within that, you've got relationships, you've got work, you've got your general health issues as well. So it's useful to have a look at those areas as well, to see how much of those are impacting upon sleep. But quite often when we're dealing with sleep, it's it's quite discreet. Quite often I have people coming in who believe that their sleep is associated with a general anxiety disorder. But when you ask about their general life, are they anxious about other things? They say no. And they say, yeah. are you anxious about your sleep? And I say, yeah. And, I, and I've seen people that have never had a history of any mental health issues that have uh, presented with significant anxiety and it's all about their sleep. And it's the one thing in their life they can't control. And again, I see this a lot with people who are very good on the control scale. They're very good at controlling things in their life. Uh, They're very successful in their life because they've been uh, very good at controlling their environment. But when their sleep goes off, they really fall like a pack of cards because their first response is to try and control sleep. And the way they tend to control sleep is they go onto the internet and they look at every sleep hygiene strategy um, yeah. in the book and they start applying it. So they start doing things they never did before, like warm baths, lavender on the pillow, uh, turning the TV off at 8 o'clock, changing the, the wattage uh, around the house for the lights. Yep. The whole process. And what they do they do all these things. And then they get into bed and uh, they're wide awake and they just feel like a failure. And they think nothing, will, nothing can fix this because they've taken on every advice that anyone's ever given them about how to get to sleep. And, of course, any tips that you get or are given to get to sleep actually going to fail because it engage, gets you to engage in sleep effort. So uh, what I generally do is if I have a person coming to me, the first thing I look at is what's sort the of sleep hygiene strategies that they've adopted, and uh, basically I get them to scrap it because usually it's over the top, and uh, I get them to go back to what they used to do before the sleep problem started, and they find that often a great relief.
0: Terrific, terrific. What about any medical tests and any other assessments, tools that you'd recommend?
1: Yeah, the the other thing I'm looking for, uh, when a person presents with sleep problems, you need to have a very open view about what might be going on because often sleep issues can be associated with other conditions like uh, sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome or periodic limb movement. And then you've got other conditions such as uh, uh, daytime conditions like narcolepsy, idiopathic Mm hypersomnolence, which is the daytime sleepiness event. So when a person comes with problems sleeping and they talk about their difficulties during the day, their difficulties remaining awake during the day, it's it's important to kind of open up and get a sense of, uh, is there anything else going on? Often the referral base that I get is coming from a sleep physician now, um, it's gone through a GP. The person's gone to the GP having sleep problems. They're referred to a sleep physician. The sleep physician uh, will then often do a sleep study to rule out sleep apnea, restless legs, periodic limb movement, narcolepsy, hypersomnolence. And if all those things are sort of clear, um, then it's uh, considered as insomnia, then it's often referred to me and then I usually address the insomnia. But often they don't go via the sleep physician and have those sort yeah. of assessments or tests so what I, um, I've i got to be very careful if I'm dealing with somebody who's, let's say, for example, is waking a lot during the night or waking unrefreshed in the morning. I'll often ask questions about, do they snore? Often I'll do a Epworth sleepiness test to identify their daytime sleepiness. And high scores in that may indicate a range of other conditions. So there are some tests that I do and assessments that I do do. And if I sense that there's something else going on, I'll refer them off to the GP.
0: I know there's a, I mean, certainly listening to this podcast, there's a lot of complementary medicine practitioners who listen to this podcast, and some of them would be doing testing, say, for cortisol, celibate, do, might be doing salivary cortisol testing, or they mm. might do some melatonin. Do you ever do any mm. of that? Yes. So what are the pros and cons? Do you think any benefit in that?
1: Oh, absolutely. That can be quite useful. It can help the person understand what's going on. We often do melatonin testing, via saliva testing uh, mm-hmm. to work out a person's current circadian rhythm. That can be quite useful to see where the circadian rhythm is actually sitting if they have an irregular sleep-wake cycle. So it certainly does play a role, particularly when you're dealing with more complex cases.
0: Yeah. And would that be a single point you'll do is with the melatonin or how, when would you? When would that be collected?
1: Well, we were doing that a while ago when I was working down at the Monash Healthy Sleep Clinic. Yep. Um, we were doing a lot of work around circadian rhythm disorders If we had a person who had a free running circadian rhythm, this is where uh, the sleep onset continued to delay around a 24 hour clock. We would often try to work out where their melatonin onset was, um, how that was tracking to see how we can grab it. And we would get them in to do saliva testing or urine testing. Sometimes we would just get them in as part of a sleep study. So we would get them in and start doing saliva testing in the evening to see whether melatonin onset was occurring. Uh, and that could be quite useful as well to work out their circadian rhythm. So uh, that information can be quite useful. Do I do it on a routine basis? No, I don't. Generally, if I'm dealing with a circadian rhythm disorder that is uh, particularly a delayed circadian rhythm disorder, I'll often rely on sleep charts and sleep diaries to get an idea of where the person's sleep onset is sort of sitting around, whether it be two or three in the morning, and when they generally wake up, when they don't have to get up for work or any other Mm -hmm. activities or responsibilities. So I would generally rely on that sort of data. Doing uh, melatonin testing can be quite expensive, so it's something I haven't done
0: for a long time. Yeah. I think people need to be a bit careful too. I do a lot of the testing. I you know, have the luxury of doing a lot of testing for a lot of the research studies that I do. And we do a lot of, we've done a lot of cortisol testing and, and done some melatonin testing. And there is significant variability across the days. and And so yeah. you do have to be careful about reading too much into a single point or a single day Testing and mm. ideally you would like to do it over several days but then it becomes incredibly mm. expensive. So you know, oh, I agree yeah. with you, there's all your assessments that you do, your sleep diaries, and I think they're mm. far more valuable than some mm. of the, the hormonal testing that people do. So, yeah. Mm. Mm. Okay, are there any other, I mean, do, in terms of foods, do you look at the foods that they eat? Do you see a relationship between their eating patterns and their sleep?
1: I'm guilty of
0: that one, Adrian. I do not. I do not. The only thing i look
1: out for is caffeine and too much alcohol at night Uh because a lot of people do rely on alcohol. Uh, Surprisingly, a lot of people rely on alcohol to actually get to sleep as a sleep aid. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, one or two glasses just as they go to bed or if they wake in the middle of the night, you know, a shot of vodka to get back to sleep. So... That often goes on, but in terms of foods, generally not. I, I haven't. You, mm. You've had a lot of experience in this area. What's, what's your take
0: on that? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, obviously, timing of, of eating is really important, and that can be an issue. I and mean, then, obviously, if there's certain foods that people are eating that they're intolerant to, and it's causing reflux or some mm. Di- mm. digestive disturbances. Mm. I'll ask about whether that's happening. So i ask about when they've last eaten, what they're eating, are they experiencing any digestive discomfort and then, you know, making mm-hmm. modifications there and obviously ideally trying to eat as healthy as possible and, and limit, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some of the mm-hmm. unhealthy foods that they eat at night. But so I think that can mm-hmm. be helpful. With the caffeine, do you... Uh, You become a Nazi, are you uh, off, (laughs) do you take them off their caffeine completely and they go... Uh, No, uh, no, 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 see, this is is
1: the thing. Now, now, a lot of people, a lot of people, you know I mentioned before, they go overboard with their sleep hygiene. They give up their morning coffee because they think that's going to make a difference. It usually doesn't. But if if they're having about, what, four, five, six, seven cups of coffee a day, well, you know, that's a red flag, clearly. I think caffeine stays in the system for about six hours, so... Early morning caffeine, totally fine. Uh, Later in the afternoon, not a great idea. But, you know, different people have different tolerance to caffeine. Um, There are some people that can have a cup of coffee when they go to bed and they sleep like a lot. Uh, And other people, they're wide awake. So generally what I do is I get people to experiment if a person's having three or four cups of coffee, I say, well, let's bring it down to one coffee in the morning and just see how you go. If it makes no difference, then go back to what you did before. But I'm very much like to experiment with people and just say, well, you know, what kind of works. So taking things out, seeing if it makes a difference and then maybe putting a portion of that back in. Uh, but no, I'm not a Nazi when it comes to caffeine. My God, if I gave up caffeine, I would not be a happy chap at
0: all. Yeah, exactly. That's great. I'm glad I'm glad you're saying that. And what about exercise? Any recommendations around exercise? Yeah, exercise is great. Uh, early morning exercise yeah. is great. Getting a lot of bright light therapy, bright light
1: exposure that can actually help uh, maintain regular sleep-wake cycles. Uh, mm-hmm. Exercise late in the evening is often difficult, particularly if it's competitive stuff. And we often see the AFL players uh, who have late-night matches, they really struggle to unwind uh, and mm-hmm. to get back to sleep. But generally, um, try to keep exercise in the early evening as a general rule. Too close to bedtime can often be a bit overstimulating, uh, and yeah. that can, that can yeah. cause sleep onset issues. Okay. Uh, but um, that exercise is great, uh, as is you know just keeping healthy. Just keeping yeah. a healthy mind and body can actually be very useful to maintaining a healthy sleep
0: pattern. Now, I mean, obviously you've, your specialty is working with people with sleep problems. So if a complementary mm-hmm. health and medicine practitioner, can they treat sleep problems? They, uh, I mean, what's your thoughts about other practitioners treating sleep?
1: A- absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. The, the only thing I would say is that, um, and I get this a lot in the, my practice, is that when a person is struggling with sleep, and GPs are guilty as this as much as anyone else, is the first line is to go for sleep hygiene. And sleep hygiene is great, as I said, as a preventative strategy. But when a person's struggling with chronic insomnia, more sleep hygiene usually doesn't help. Unless they're Mm. doing ridiculous things like, you know, drinking stacks of coffee throughout the day. Napping a lot during the day can also be a major factor that they can address. And, um, you know, too much alcohol and so forth. But generally, this uh, CVTR training is not just for psychologists, uh, anyone, yeah. any health professional can actually do it and should probably look at it. It's pretty straightforward work, but not look, at answer to your question, no, uh, anyone who's interested in sleep and is seeing patients who have difficulty with sleep, getting their head around the key components of stimulus control, sleep restriction therapy can be very, very useful. And when we talk about sleep restriction therapy, sometimes just getting them to go to bed a little bit later and getting up a little mm-hmm. bit earlier may be all they actually need to actually address a lot of the problems and just keeping a healthy lifestyle. But there's lots of programs that they can do in terms of CBTR. And mm-hmm. I think if if there are any health professionals out there that are interested in sleep, um, I would encourage you to do some training around CBTI because you can do that and provide a enormous benefit and service to your patients who are struggling with their sleep.
0: Yeah, I'd certainly agree with you there. I think because uh, sleep is so such a major problem in in our practice, mm. that anybody working mm. with mm. clients should have some mm. good understanding of sleep and the treatment. And see, and you know, doing a, a you know a brief workshop yeah. or course in CBTI is is invaluable. So yeah, definitely agree with mm. you there. I know we're running out of time and I could keep going for, forever. Just one more yeah. question around melatonin. What are your thoughts about yes. um, melatonin? Yes. Melatonin, I think, is
1: overprescribed in terms of quantity. A lot of people think more is better. In actual fact, less is more when it comes to melatonin. Melatonin, uh, you've got a couple of products on the market. You've got slow-release melatonin, often coming in the form of circadin, and uh, it's quite useful for... For sleep maintenance insomnia. When we're getting uh, looking at sleep onset insomnia, lower doses are, are a lot more effective. In actual fact, the way I tend to prescribe melatonin, particularly young people uh, who have difficulty initiating sleep, they may be a little bit phase delayed, not a lot, uh, struggling to get to sleep before, um, before 12 o'clock. What I often do is I actually introduce a half a milligram, zero point five milligram of fast-release mm-hmm. melatonin, about five hours, four to five hours before their bedtime, and then half to one milligram, about an hour before their bedtime, and we often mm-hmm. often see that it produces amazing results in terms wow. of the building their um, sleepiness coming out to bedtime.
0: That's with people with sleep onset insomnia.
1: Yeah, very much so. Yep. Yeah, Sleep maintenance, uh, slow release is quite useful, but less is more. I, I've seen people on 5, 10, 20 milligrams of melatonin, and they, they all repeat, it makes no difference. So we often yeah. see it has um, less effect. I think the research suggests that after three milligrams, it's less effective. Lower doses are more effective. But yeah, it's widely used. Uh, is it is it useful? I think it is. When you compare it to a range of other medications or sleep medications that people can engage in, mm-hmm. like rest of it, that's often used a lot, but that bombs people yep. out the next day. But then they're really struggling. Uh, after melatonin's not working, they, they go and see the GP and they're often on to harder or stronger sleeping meds that are often very hard to get them off.
0: Yeah. Any herbal remedies or any supplements that you – do you use any of those at all or recommend any of those? Short answer, Uh <laughs> yeah. No. Mm -hmm. not
1: because i don't think they're useful most of the people i see have already already been using them like magnesium what are some of the other ones that they use Um,
0: yeah you got your valerian that often's quite common
1: too i'm not saying they're not helpful in Mm -hmm. fact if anything they're probably more beneficial if if somebody's going to take something probably better Mm -hmm. off doing that than taking sort of Harder medications like still not yeah. and so on and so forth. So, yep, I'm not knocking it.
0: Um, just the short
1: answers, I don't recommend it, yeah. only because most of the people I see have already covered that ground, if you will.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. In terms of any recommendations that I give, I think they can be useful. And ultimately, it's about: are you targeting it for sleep, or are you targeting it for anxiety? If it's a generalized anxiety that's going on, then you know you might look at your different adaptogens and and you know your, yeah. your ashwagandhas and your rhodiola and things like that. But it's interesting yeah. how you mentioned how you use the melatonin, like five hours before, yeah. a lower dose, and then yeah. um, and then a higher dose, or you know just before sleep. Yeah. So I think practitioners need to think about dosing too if they're going to use. Yeah, you know, mm. magnesium for example you know is it just do you just take it an hour before bed or do you actually look at you know introducing it a little bit earlier to help that mm. slowing down and then mm. uh something just immediately before so that's a an, an interesting mm. thing and we certainly you know unfortunately in research studies it's never done that way but uh, that's mm. you've made a really good point that gets me thinking so mm.
1: Mm. good
0: great all right. Well, thank you very much, Frank, for, uh, for having a discussion today. I could, you know, we could go for hours. I think that there's so much valuable, um, information that you've given people and, you know, sleep is such a profound, uh, problem that, uh, many people with both medical conditions and, and psychological yeah. di- conditions experience. So I encourage people to, you know, certainly learn more about sleep and, and, you know, re-listen to this podcast because you've just given some great information and, uh, Uh, Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks for having me. All right. So thank you, everyone, for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts, and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Adrian Lopresti, and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.
1: This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to FX Medicine, and share us with your family, friends, and colleagues.